So yeah, it goes, it goes without saying that it's, it's, it's an absolute delight to come back to Oxford and give a talk here. I mean, it seems absolutely, I mean, it's great working up the hill at the Wellcome Trust, but it seems to be since I've been back down to anthropology in the school down here. It's just a shame that Biomath isn't still over the road, but, but it's, um, no, it's fantastic to come back. And, and thanks to, to Stan for the invitation. Um, so I was asked to come and talk a little bit about genetics and obesity, and also to introduce the, the, one of the studies that I work, at, uh, I work on in Bristol, which is the ASPAC study. And ASPAC stands for the even Longitudinal Study of Parents and Children, which is a big pregnancy cohort that we work on in down in Bristol. So, and actually what I'm going to do is I'm going to wait this, study to, uh, wait this, this talk towards um, talking, a little, talking about genetics and obesity, and the current state of play with genetics and obesity at, at the moment in terms of epidemiology. And I think one of the concentrations that I wanted to sort of push this talk towards was the role of the environment in those types of studies. So I think that's kind of relevant for you guys. And then within the midst of that, I will, I will sort of try and feed in ASPAC where it's relevant. Um, I think I give one slide explicitly to ASPAC so I can tell you about it and its resources, but I think the rest of it I'm going to talk a little bit more generically about obesity and genetics. Um, so I guess the, my day job really to understand what I do, uh, other than the, the lecturing things, is is, is as a research in genetic epidemiology. And really, it is an extension of epidemiology as opposed to study of raw genetics. I don't do family studies, I don't do the sort of molecular level anymore. I tend to concentrate on epidemiological constructs that are interested in risk factors of health and development, but also of normal life as well, and trying to work out those things. And of course, core components of that is both genetic and environmental bits, okay? So that's, that's what most of my research is based on. Um, so just, just very briefly, you'll see the slide throughout the talk, it's just what we're going to look through. A um, little bit um, of introduction into genetics now in the sort of a post-genome-wide era, and I'll explain what I mean by that when we get to it. Um, I'll introduce the ASPAC study, um, then, I'll, then I want to address this idea of the role of the environment in genetic and epidemiological studies in three ways. I want to talk about um, doing general epidemiology and how genetics can have a role in us as epidemiologists, so looking at environmental risk and health outcomes, or growth and development, or normal life outcomes. Um, I then want to talk a little bit about um, just how we interpret genetic effects when we do so-called genetic studies. They seem to be sort of sectioned off and considered as, as specialists, but really, actually, genotypes only act as a function of their relationship with the environment anyway. So we really should be considering them in light of environmental context. And then I'll just expand that a little bit with the consideration of more of, of a more detailed look at um, gene-environment interaction. Again, how people have started to explore that as a field of research. Um, then just a little touch upon the limitations of this type of work and the, the limitations that we have when we're faced with genetic and environmental data. And then hopefully there'll be time to open it up for some, some discussion at the end. And I've just brought some points forward which might hopefully prompt a few, few discussion points at the end. So just to go into the first one of these then. Um, you may or may not have covered some of the, the, the general sort of genetics literature recently, but since... 2000, the back end of 2006 to now, it's been an absolute explosion in, in the genetics field. And you may have seen it in newspapers and, and various reports in lay literature about the speed at which genetics has, has sort of um, picked up and made contributions to the understanding of common disease recently. Things like genes for obesity, genes for diabetes, for cancer risk, for smoking, all sorts have just sprung out of nowhere on the basis of of a, of a history of this type of work which has yielded not very much at all and candidate gene studies which really haven't been very productive. Um, and it's been heralded as this sort of an all-singing, all-dancing champion of new science and everything. It's actually really, really, really crude basic science that's happened. But what it's actually fed upon is a, is a 
and unbridled development in the technology which we've been allowed to, to play with when we're doing these studies. The scale at which we do the studies now and the expense at which we can do genotyping has become, it's, it's just changed beyond all recognition. And we're doing actually very simple epidemiology, but on a, on a whole new level. And it's allowing us to, to, re, to so I think what I'm getting at is this, it, it's, it's absolutely genuine and new, it's new science and new approach to asking questions about complex disease, but it's not as complicated as it sounds. And hopefully by the end of this, you'll understand what sort of stuff we're doing. Um, just to illustrate this kind of ex expansion of understanding or, or, or genuine uh, um, hits, as it were, or correlates between genetic information and com common complex disease, I just want to show you that a temporal sort of record of the findings in type 2 diabetes. Okay, so uh, um, it's just a, it's a little 3D graph which I'm going to build up sequentially. On the left there, you can just see a, a risk of type 2 diabetes, which is displayed as an odds ratio. Okay. So consider the null then at, at, at an odds ratio of one. Um, and then we're just on the bottom, on, on the x-axis there, I've just got uh, a year. So just a temporal sequence of, of research that's been done. And I'm going to show you evidence through that time, which is derived from original work, which is this idea of candidate uh, gene studies, where we would take our, our best understanding of biological pathways or biological contribution and evidence that's already present and try and then base or generate hypotheses on the basis of that and then explore those in specific scientific experiments, okay? So that was sort of an original approach to doing genetic studies, okay? Compare that then to another early approach which was based more around um, familial uh, segregation of rare conditions or congenital differences which would look for particular groupings of people or particular families who show certain conditions and you, you can actually physically trace bits of genomic material through a family and track that with the presentation of disease. And so this second group in green then, um, those types of effort that have led to this thing called positional cloning, which would be after having tracked bits of the genome through families, we then try and pull them out and then mine them to see what's in there. So, position, so positional cloning really means the sort of the exploration of early familial studies. And then lastly I'm going to show where this hypothesis-free approach, and the reason it's labelled that is because the genome-wide approach, rather than looking at sections of the genome specifically under given hypotheses or because they've been found in family studies, well, so rather than looking at particular sections under hypotheses, we just simply look at the whole genomes of people in one go. So there's no prior hypothesis, there's no biological idea. We simply ask questions about genomic variation and whether it's related to disease or not. So there's no prior hypothesis at all. We just ask all available hypotheses in one go. Okay, so they're the three approaches that I'm going to show in, in these results. So in 2000, 2001, or should I say by 2000, 2001, only two loci had been reliably found for type 2 diabetes, which is KCNJ11 and PPAR gamma, which are still reliably, still been robustly shown today. So these are still, these are generic, these are bona fide hits for type 2 diabetes. But only two, in, since the, the dawn of, of genetics and diabetes, there only had been two loci contributing a tiny proportion of the variance in risk of diabetes had been found. In 2006, TCF7L2 was found on the basis initially of a, of a positional cloning effort, and it actually still is, with an odds ratio of approaching 1.4, um, it still is one of the largest effects, the genetic effects for common complex type 2 diabetes. Okay? So even that is a relatively small effect, considering some of the, the effects that you would see in an epidemiological study. For instance, smoking on cancer, which has odds ratios of 15 or, or above, maybe. Okay? 
still only three by 2006, okay? and still a tiny portion of the variance in type 2 diabetes risk in the population. 2007, the hypothesis-free approaches really came into their own, and we get a swathe of new findings. Okay? So rather than basing our science on what's already available or our best guesses at biology, we take a, because we've now got this new technology, and we can ask all hypotheses simultaneously and just let us be guided by the data or the truth, as it were, okay, all of a sudden, it, as if by magic, we get a whole load of new, new hits. That's not because we're doing more complicated testing, not because we've got new statistical methods or something really complicated. We've just got much bigger scale, much more resolute studies of, of the whole genome, which aren't biased in any way by any priors we had about that particular um, investigation. And this carries on in 2008 and very recently. We've simply kept adding to this list of loci contributing to type diabetes risk. Okay, so now we've got upwards of, I think they, even those which are unpublished now are pushing us on up, up to 20 or so loci which are reliably associated with type 2 diabetes. Okay. So there's really been, a, there has genuinely been an explosion in, in findings in, in the field of genetics and complex disease. And this is just one story type of diabetes, but it could be the same, even more so for, for, um, for Crohn's disease, for example, which has been equally rich in its findings. Obesity has had the same sort of effect. Okay, up until um, the back end of 2006, 2007, there was simply no reliable uh, genetic associates with with obesity or adiposity. There was just nothing that had been found which was common or acting at the population level. There were known, and I'll mention this in a, in a moment, there were known uh, monogenic contributions to obesity, also rare congenital conditions where you get very extreme. Uh, 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 differences in, in adiposity as a result of single mutations. And there are, bit, there are parts of the, the, the leptin pump pathway and hypothalamic regulation of appetite, which you might have heard about obese mice and things like that, the OB mice, um, which, not, which specific mutations therein can yield congenital obesity. But at the common level, at the population level, there's simply no evidence of any genetic correlates with obesity at all. Since then, um, with FTO, fat mass and obesity related loci, and then with a series of other um, uh, efforts which have been based, which has essentially been building power, looking at bigger and bigger studies, asking this question about common genetic variation and contribution to obesity or adiposity, there have been a slew of papers and, and also publicised loci which have added to the, that list now. And looking at the, um, the, 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 most, the, the most contemporary data, we're, we're, we're way over 20 to 30 loci contributing to to obesity itself or adiposity, okay? But this is, this is quite different science to, to the, to, again, to the, to the candidate disease, uh, candidate gene era. This is, I mean, for example, in the first of these, which was the, the science paper you can see at the top, um, this is a, a, a loci that's been found de novo from actually working type 2 diabetes, okay? The only, the only reason that the authors found that it was um, an obesity locus was that we, um, we, we stratify the type 2 diabetes cases by, by BMI. We found that in the lean diabetics, we had no signal for this loci at all, for this locus, sorry, at all. And in the, in, the, in the overweight diabetics, we had a signal for this locus. Replicating this signal in 40,000 individuals in the general population allowed us to replicate that signal. That signal is only a tenth of a standard deviation BMI. Okay, so it is a robust, it's a bona fide finding for obesity in the general population, okay? But it is a tiny, tiny effect. Okay. 
So just to summarize some of the findings that have been done so far, it's a bit of a busy table, but this is the first one here that I mentioned. Um, and what I've tried to do is just bring in what we think we know or don't know about function, about how these things might be working. Uh, with FTO, it was a bit, when it was found, it was a brand new locus. We knew nothing about it. It was found as a, as a diabetes locus. When looked up on available databases, OMIM or PubMed, if you will, um, it was, there was one study of knockouts in mice which had fused toes, hence FTO. That was it. We've got no idea how it's contributing, no idea how it works in terms of its contribution to obesity. Okay? But it's testament to this idea of using the whole genome and variation within it, with no hypothesis to try and understand what genetic contributions there are. The point is, we would never have started a candidate disease, a candidate gene study on the FTO locus. Okay, because there'd be no evidence previous or no reason to do it. Okay? But it's been yielded and, and it's, been, it's, been, it's now very, very well established across population uh, correlative obesity. Or adiposity, should I say. Um, and what you'll find here is that although we know a little bit about MC4, uh, MC4R, which is the second one of these, which was found by a large consortium called Giant. MC4R has been recognised with respect to congenital uh, 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 patterns in obesity, so there are actually some rare mutations in the MC4R locus which have been associated with very extreme obesity, but the common locus, or this particular genetic variant, so these just denote single changes in the genome, single letter flips in the genome, okay? Um, and these are just unique identifiers for those. This one, although it's near MC4R, which is a gene, okay, um, we don't know whether it's actually the same signal as the MC4R. It's close to it, and it's the closest gene. It's the way the paper was written. But nobody really knows what's happening there. And unfortunately, when I tried to look a bit further into these, I had to end up writing the same thing. We think that TMEM is probably expressed heavily in the brain is probably related to maybe the regulation of appetite. Don't really know. Okay, so this is a whole swathe of new biological information. So we may be finding very small effects, but we're getting genuine new biological insight into how, well, where the heritability of obesity and overweight comes from. Okay. This little graph just summarises in, in a kind of chromosomal way where those signals exist in the genome. Um, each one of these little light grey, dark grey, light grey, dark grey, and so on blocks represents a chromosome. The little sort of the grey smudges that you can see coming up the page are actually composed of single spots. So it's just a, like a scatter plot. Okay? But bear in mind that there are the type of genome-wide analyses that we do currently, there are two and a half million spots across the genome there. Okay? The vast majority of them okay, are found at the base of these, of these scatters, which is why they look like dense colour at the bottom. What's stratifying them, what's pulling them out of the base there, is just the p-value for a test of association for each of those spots with obesity, or in this case, BMI. Okay? The reason that the scale is as it is, is we just inverse log 10 scale of the p-value, so rather than going from uh, silly uh, 0.00 or whatever, p down 10 to the minus 40 values, it just goes from a scale of 0 to whatever. Okay? So this would be representative of p down 10 to the minus 20. Okay? So if you move through the genome, you can see where these genes lie and how they perform in terms of their association. So this is work from the second giant consortium project, which is a big collection of studies, okay, which is the original effort was 32,000 people with genome-wide data okay, as a discovery cohort, okay, and then a follow-up, an independent follow-up of each one of these top signals in almost 60,000 people. 
And the reason that I wanted to bring those numbers into play is because they, they speak volumes about, A, that the effect sizes again, they're very small and we need massive studies to pick them up. Okay? So we're not doing very witty science, we're just throwing numbers at this situation, but we are yielding de novo biology, and that's certainly of interest. This plot down below is, 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 a, is a quantile quantile plot, and it's just used for the, the, uh, the comparison of two uh, measures of anything. But in this case, what I'm doing is I'm plotting um, an expected distribution of p-values if I were to perform two and a half million tests, okay, against those that I actually find in my experiment. Okay? Now, if there's no deviation from what I would expect by chance, I would expect all of my values just to lie along this green line just here, okay? this, this diagonal. What I actually find is that I get a vast excess okay, of values, of p-values, which are lower than I would expect. So I have got things which are happening which are above the level of chance. Now, there are two, in, in the paper, that um, our paper, the second giant effort that, that we put out, but there's actually two of these, one of them is a bit more drastic than this departure in that it includes all of these known loci. The point with this plot is that this is the plot after we've removed these known loci. So there's a hell of a lot left to, to find if we've got the power to do it. Okay. Interestingly, if we take the risk alleles, the adiposity predisposing alleles at each one of those loci and generate a score for individuals in the study, so if they imagine if there was one locus, an individual could have zero, one, or two copies. If there were two loci, they could have zero, one, two, three, four, so on copies of the risk alleles, because there's now six possible alleles to contain at two different loci. And we build up a score. So we can go to any individual in the study and say, how many of the BMI risk alleles do you have? Or how many do you have? Okay? And if we look at, it's a bit blurry, but on the bottom here we've got uh, actually a weighted number of risk alleles, and all we've done is weight the score for the contribution or the effect size of each one of those alleles. And then we've, up the side here we've got average BMI, and we've just superimposed the relationship between those two things onto a distribution of BMI. And we get a remarkably linear relationship, which is suggesting that simply the more risk alleles you have, the, the greater the, the BMI will be. This is happening in a, in a frighteningly linear way. And just for comparison, Work that Giant's also done on height is showing a very similar pattern. It's okay, I'll, I'll bring you up a question. Yeah, okay. Now, this is all, um, okay, so, okay. Are there other ways of achieving these types of findings? Okay, do we have to throw 60,000 samples at this type of question to find these low side relatively small effects? which are reliable and seem to be acting in a, in a, on common complex disorders. Well, well, there are other ways of achieving this. Um, there are definitely power uh, in doing these massive studies. However, they're, they're, we can achieve it in a number of ways. We could try and reduce the, um, the number of samples required by increasing the accuracy of our measurements. Which, for example, BMI itself is a relatively good population measure of adiposity, but it's in no way perfect. There are other ways of looking at adiposity. We could use, for instance, uh, uh, DEXA scans. In, in, in the, in the Auspach study, we're lucky enough to have uh, dual X-ray scanning, which gives us an, a, 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 a nice, accurate, a clean measure of body composition, both lean and fat mass, but also bone composition. Okay. What that does is that reduces the, the effective, effectively reduces the noise around our, our, our outcome. Okay, and increases, inflates our power, reduces our error, if you will. 
Um, another way of looking at it, rather than just better measures of the same thing, is that we could look at things like regional adiposity. Maybe we get a clearer biological picture when we look at just waste, or just visceral adiposity, or different regional uh, deposition of, of fat. Okay? It might be that some of those, we're just picking up generic signals about BMI. We might get a better idea of the contribution, biological contribution, if we split it up to its respective components. And Cecilia Lincoln has produced a very nice paper on this, looking at waste explicitly, which I think came out in the Public Library of Science, across genetics, uh, last year, I think, or early this year. Um, just, just of a note, these are just the, um, the same types of plots as you saw a minute ago, but rather than for BMI, the top one here is for waste, the top one, and the bottom one here is for waste hip. And although two of the signals are, are outstanding, which we get both in the BMI plots and in these, there's a markedly different profile of the signals that we get for regional adiposity than we get for generic or general adiposity. Okay, these two signals here not being found in, in the BMI studies or the general adiposity studies. And lastly, we could alter the experimental design. We could try and enrich for extremes of obesity as opposed to looking across the general population. And that particular type of effort we're doing at the moment in a, in a, in a study, in a, a collaboration with some guys from, from, uh, from Denmark, where we've taken the Danish national conscripts, which is originally 300,000 individuals, and just sampled the most extreme obese. Okay, those which have, I think they've got a average, an average BMI of 33, and we compared that to a random selection from the rest of the cohort. That's just what this little plot means. This is the, the normal distribution of the cohort at large. Okay, and this is the distribution of the BMI in that extreme tail. And we've used that, and we found that if we don't achieve the same power as 70,000 strong. And this is the study of uh, 2,000 by 2,000, I think. But we certainly pick up the majority of the signals. But this is what I really want to talk about um, in the interpretation of those findings. Is are we actually finding genes? This, this, this. You quite hear people say genes for something. Is that really what we're finding, or is it? Are we actually just getting? Should we be interpreting these results in a different way? This is the original. Um, uh, some of the original data from the FTO, the first locus found. This doesn't really come out very well, but this just is a section of the genome on chromosome 16. These little lines here are just where the genes are. This little plot here indicates where there's correlation in the genome. Okay, so chunks of the genome will vary, but together, always in the same way. And what we'd be worried about, if we found a signal in one of these chunks, we'd get no resolution about where the genuine signal was, because the whole chunk moves in the same way. What we find with FTO is that the best hit, actually, which is something like Peter Hansen to the minus 15, lies within a small and recognisable chunk on chromosome 16, so we've got a resolute area where we think something's going on, we don't know how it works. And we've got very clear signals with fat mass, this is, this is a DEXA measured fat mass, and actually we get a small positive finding with lean mass, although it's been argued that this is actually the coincident increase in muscle mass you require to carry that much extra adiposity, but that's probably conjecture. The problem is, if you look at these effects on the population level, these aren't genes for obesity. These aren't going to make you obese. If you look at the general, so this is data taken from a cross-sectional study in Copenhagen, about 38,000 people, where we've got BMI and we've got these genotypes measured. It's just a shift in the distribution. The whole distribution is just being moved along by these genotypes. So it's not going to move you from one tail to another if you carry a variant, like, for instance, the rare variation MC4R will when you're born. It's not a congenital path to obesity, it's just a shift in the distribution. That tenth of a standard deviation wobble that I talked about earlier happens at all parts of the distribution, be you skinny or fat. Okay? 
This is just the same effect, just, just demonstrated in a cumulative frequency plot. Okay? So where the data is contributing most, i.e. the mix of this distribution, we just get a shift. But it's not just only a shift there, or only at the tails, it's across the whole distribution. Okay? So these are actually just loci associated with shifts in adiposity. Okay? And small ones at best. So we have to be careful. I mean, publishing work on genes and obesity is a nightmare because they're interpreted as gene, you know, when's the pill that's going to make me thin coming? That sort of thing. It's just, it's not like that. And it's not denying the fact that there are monogenic um, uh, uh, contributors to obesity. And that's absolutely true. But they're very rare. And these certainly aren't there. Just to illustrate that, I wanted to just bring up this idea of genetic architecture. And what I've done here is just, it's just a schematic, there's no real data. It's just plot the frequency of the variants that we're seeing against the effect sizes that we find thereof. And then just try and bin the, these different types of genetic variant or different types of genetic contribution. So number one here, we've got variants which are very low in frequency and very low in effect. Well, we probably will never find them because we've got no power, and if we did, they're probably not worth looking at anyway. And number two, we've got, in, we've got alleles which are very high in frequency, but very high in effect. Now, under any thoughts about selection here, simply wouldn't allow those alleles to exist, because they're very risky and they're very frequent, so they're going to be removed. Okay? Number three here illustrates those which have largely been picked up to date by the genome-wide studies that I've been talking about. Relatively high in frequency, but relatively low in effect. So how have we found them? We've used very large studies to try and de detect those relatively small effects. But of interest now, which is certainly spawning a whole load of new research, but illustrates the contrast in the, the architecture of the contribution of monogenic or simple genetic conditions to complex conditions like the ones I've just been illustrating, are these two, four and five, i.e., the very rare but very large effect loci, so things like the congenital mutations, which have extremely large effect, okay? but of increasing interest, those in the middle, intermediate allele frequencies, intermediate effects. Okay? So although I'm not mentioning them at the moment, we might do the discussion, these are the ones which are actually pushing most of the developments now in genetic research. But the point that I wanted to illustrate with this little schematic is that there is there's very much a genetic architecture, and with the, the, the work that's been done on common... Uh, loci affecting you know, population levels of BMI, it's been stuck down in this bracket here at number three. That, you know, we've been really trying to use power to grab those and only mining a very small part of the whole genetic contribution to adiposity. So we've been focused on one specific bit of that profile. Okay, so just uh, here I've just made a statement about the fact that monogenic obesity does exist and there are rare loci which have largely been um, uh, brain hypothalamic re re regulation of appetite linked with respect to the presentation of obesity. Okay, so a brief slide then, just as a kind of pause on, on OUSPAC and what it is, because I'll mention some of its data later on. Um, we're very, very lucky in, in, in Bristol. Uh, Gene Golding and Marcus Pembury back, back in the day set up this fantastic resource which was designed to be a pregnancy cohort, about 14,000 women who who were pregnant were, were invited to be enrolled in this study. And the idea was that they were then going to be followed up from birth uh, continuously. Okay? It's going to be a longitudinal study. And we're going to follow up the children in great detail around uh, uh, sort of perinatally. Okay? And then, we, then we're going to get, follow them up later in their lives, but also get data on mother and, and, and father where it is available. 
Now this study's been running, the children are now 16, and we've got extremely rich phenotypic resources on the children, both at birth, but through their lives. We've got specialist clinics where they've all been invited back um, at nine, uh, sorry, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 15, and they're now being reconsented for their 18. Okay, and this is, we've got a working sample set of about 9,000, and the mothers are still regularly involved too, so we've got the mothers in as well. We've just been funded to get full phenotyping on mums as well. We've got genome-wide data on 3,000 of the children, genome-wide data on all of the mums, so all 9,000 of the mothers, and I think we've got about 1,000 of the fathers who are regularly participating as well. We've got immortalised cell lines on 6,000 of the children, um, and we've got some really nice hard phenotyping as well, things like objectively assessed activity, we've got the DEXA study of course, we've got full anthropometry, and then of course there's just a whole battery of, of questionnaire-based data. Everything from uh, SAT results through to um, general questions about uh, psychosis-like symptoms to um, uh, autism-related traits. We've got, it, the list is endless. I think we must have, at each specific age, we've probably got way in excess of three to 4,000 variables on each child alone let alone the mothers. So it's a really, really, and the, the mind-blowing thing is that all of the participants are so keen to be involved. It's a remarkable statement that they're actually, the, the, the rate of attrition in the study has been so slim. Um, but what we're now doing is trying to move this up into the, this sort of genomic and omic era where we're interested in, you know, how their proteins are expressed, we're interested in how their genes are related to these things. Okay, so we, we're lucky enough to have, for example, blood uh, extractions at different periods. So we can take serological measurements uh, for instance, we've got um, non-fasting uh, lipids and glucose and insulin and hormones at age 9. We've got fasting levels of all those things at age 15. But of course, we've got DNA at all those levels. But if you're really interested in things like, in, in fact, further down the road, things like methylation and temporal things which affect gene expression, we also have blood taken from, from cord and then from early life and then from late life. So we can compare these things which might change longitudinally with fixed entities like genotype, for example. Okay, so it's a very, very rich resource which we're hoping to make the most of and it's been um, critically involved in, in actually often following up some of these genome-wide signals with specific phenotypes of interest. For example, following up the BMI findings with specific measures of fat and lean mass to try and understand more about the biology of that hit. Okay. But, um, it's, it's difficult to prepare a presentation on mouse back because you could do 50 slides and that would be the end. But well, that's, I'm not really going to talk much more about it, but there is this fantastic website which has lists of all the phenotypes available and the structure of the study. Okay, so let's move on then to the environmental bit. And I think when I first wrote it, I was thinking about genetic studies explicitly, but actually what I mean, and I think I mentioned this earlier, is epidemiology. We're doing epidemiology here, not explicit genetics. We're not doing functional testing or molecular work. We're asking epidemiological questions about risk but it just so happens that often our exposures are genotypes. Okay? It's, it's the same sort of principle. Um, and it's clear that environment plays a really heavy role in, in exposure to risk beyond the realm of genetics. Okay? And we need to incorporate this. I mean, even if we were to have homogenous genotype across the world, the environment would still be causing the variants therein. And it's only within that context that we need to see that a genetic effects. Um, Incidentally, this was a trip that we recently did to the Solomon Islands where we were interested specifically in some uh, pigment-related and anthropometric traits. But the only place that we saw any obesity was in the middle of town when the headmaster did nothing better to do than to chew back and up and sit in his bottom all day. Um, 
Yeah, so these are just, sorry, this is completely on another side, but this is the phenotype, one of the phenotypes we were fascinated in, this fantastic blonde hair on mel melanic skin, just remarkable and evolutionarily strange, but that's what we're interested in. So on another level though, just comparing BMI in different environmental conditions at a population level, we see that there are gross differences, and these are widely known and widely reported. This is just a comparison of the Copenhagen data that I mentioned earlier with some of the data from the Solomons. Copenhagen, sort of a standard westernised population, if you will, with a mean BMI, which is, I guess, slightly overweight, if we take sort of generic clinical um, definitions thereof. But in the Solomons, where we believe people are genuinely more active around in the islands, basically there's no sort of, um, there's no patterns or genuine patterns of sedentary behaviour that we can observe, you do see an expected shift in the distribution of BMI. This is largely conjecture, though, and just observational work. On a much more empirical note, in the ASPAP study, where we've got much more defined phenotypes, we can look at empirical relationships between environmental factors and things which are clinically meaningful, like BMI. So these are relationships between quintile of objectively measured activity. When I say objectively measured, rather than writing a questionnaire about how much running you did, we actually strap these actigraphs, these um, little accelerometers, onto the kids and then leave them for a week and record how much activity they actually do, how much running do they do around. We're not so good about recording bicycles because, of course, they have a long period of flat, but it, it generally gives a reliable and much more robust measure of activity than, than self-questionnaire. And as you would expect and as you might hope, we get, you know, the odds, so these are odds ratios, again, of being obese, clinically defined obese or age-specific. You have to be, you know, we're not looking at the sort of 30 cutoff as we would in adults, but these are age-specific definitions of obesity do drop as we, as we go up in activities. The children get more active so we sort of have less risk of being obese, slightly less marked in, in females. This is a really, really nice paper written by Andy Ness that came out in Plus Medicine. But the three things that I wanted to concentrate on, is that was just a little snapshot of, of my belief about the, the, the contribution of environment to, to, to general risk and to clinically related features and how we can assess, assess it both uh, anecdotally and, and, and empirically. But on a purely epidemiological note, quite often when we're looking at those types of relationships, we're really worried because we've got, we might measure activity and BMI, but we're worried whether we're actually measuring, or we might find an association. But the question is whether that's a causal association, or whether we've got confounding structures and latent associations which are upsetting that relationship. Okay? And that can be really troublesome when you're trying to assert. For instance, if we were to remove activity, okay, what, is it actually the activity that's causing the reduction in the risk of BMI? Or is it the fact that activity is associated with greater social class? And social class is causally, or an element thereof, is associated with BMI. We don't know unless we explore it more empirically. So that's one to look at right now. And this, this is a problem which pervades all sorts of epi, epi studies. And this is just a snapshot from, from the mirror, which is about um, the big C, about cancer. And all of these anecdotal observational reports suggesting that if you drink three glasses of milk a day, you reduce your cancer risk by 50%. If you um, eat five carrots a day, you reduce your risk of ovarian cancer by 50%, and so on and so forth, which basically, if you were to do all of these things, makes you immune from the risk of cancer. Right? But these are, these are hardly likely to be suffering the problems of observational studies and observational epidemiology and confounding, if not reverse causality. So we did some work, and we've been working on this principle um, for, for a while now, called Mendelian randomization which aims to exploit the properties of genotypes to avoid this problem. And we wanted to observe two things to try and prove that this was a valid way of doing things. 
Firstly, we wanted to observe, and we did in one of our studies in Bristol, which is the, um, the Bristol, uh, sorry, the British Women's Health and Heart Study, which is a collection of about three and a half women across the UK, an average age of about 68. It's a cardiovascular study, and we wanted to, of all the variables we had, all the phenotypic variables, measurements on these ladies that we had, we wanted to ask, are they cross-correlated? Do, does this latent substructure exist? And we found way above above chance that we found that of course there was. There was massive correlation between all the features that we were measuring for these women. But when we took all the candidate loci that we've been doing on various studies over the years, I think we had about a hundred, which are supposedly doing something. They're all generated from candidate studies, remember, so they've all got hypotheses and should be doing something to biology. That was why they were chosen. We found that the level of crossover or co-association between genotypes was in marked contrast to that of phenotypes. Okay? So outside the realms of population genetics derived correlation of the genome, it appears that Mendel's ideas about segregation or about you know, the correlation of genotypes are probably pretty, pretty much right. That gives us an opportunity. And I want to demonstrate that opportunity with this simple structure. We're interested, for example, in BMI's relationship to metabolic phenotypes, whatever they may be. But we're worried because we don't know, we might find a relationship there, but we don't know whether it's causal, and we certainly don't know which way it's going. Okay? So we're worried about that, and we want to think about it in a bit more detail. Why don't we use, and I wanted to cross this out really, a proxy measure, another measure, forget that it's genotype there now, but something else, as a better measurement for BMI to reassess that original relationship. So first thing we need to prove that this is correlated with our outcome. Because if it's going to be a proxy for BMI, it's got to be it's got to be related to it, it's got to be associated with it. And if that's true, then is it associated with the phenotypes that we're interested in? If it's a good proxy, it should also be associated with the metabolic phenotypes. Now, why then is genotype a good proxy for BMI? Well, we've got I've just shown you a load of BMI proxies, genetic ones. We've got a load of associates with BMI. The reason that it's a reason a good proxy and a contribution to this problem is that, as we've just said, the genotypes are largely um, random with respect to environmental components and random with respect to the, the general environmental, the latent confounding structure. The all allocation of genotypes is largely at random and is certainly, well, you could test it if you want, you can genotype yourself and correlate those genotypes with your social standing, with your the chances of smoking. On average, these things are randomly assigned. So what we're doing by using this proxy is we're actually avoiding all the baggage that we get when we look at that basic observational association. Okay? So the argument is that the genotype here is a better marker for BMI than measuring BMI itself. And just to illustrate that very quickly, in a test that we did of this more formally, we took a whole load of metabolic phenotypes and we looked at the relationship between um, one change in a BMI proxy genotype, so FTO here, so what is the effect of an allele, a, a risk allele of, of this particular BMI genotype, okay? We know it's about a tenth of a standard deviation, okay? Or 0.8 standard deviations. So we wanted to compare the effect of those alleles on these intermediate phenotypes, these metabolic phenotypes, and see if it's of the order of magnitude or, or similar to that which we would expect for a 0.8 standard deviation change in BMI. So we take, basically, we scale the observation association to the same size as the allelic association, and we ask the questions empirically, are they, are, they, are they the same in our data? 
are the genetic effects on our metabolic phenotypes the same as we would expect from the observational relationship between BMI and those metabolic phenotypes? If they are, it would suggest that the observational association is probably right. If the genotypic association, without its confounding, without its substructure, without those problems, are not the same as the observational ones, it might suggest that we've got confounding or some kind of problem in our observational data. So where is the real data? Well, it seems to sit right on the diagonal. Okay? All of these points here and their respective confidence seem to lie right on the 45, i.e., if you take one of them, for instance, diastolic blood pressure, the effect of an FTR allele is approximately the same as an expected 0.8 or allelic-sized effect of BMI. So it would suggest that we've probably got causal associations between BMI, the original observational study, and diastolic blood pressure. So all we're doing is asking a basic observational epi question, is BMI related to these things? But we're checking it by using genotypes related to BMI, exploiting their properties, and reassessing the same association. Okay. Trying to remove unwanted observational or environmental effects. Okay, all genetic effects are subject to environment. The FTO, going back to this particular genotype again, is about the only one that's had a lot of work done it explicitly as a new hit for BMI, seems to be related to appetite. And there's a series of papers, just snippets here, here from, which suggest that BMI, independent, uh, sorry, FTO, independently of BMI, is actually making people eat more. They're consuming more energy, okay? Which clearly is an environmental, you know, if you restrict then the energy available to them, that genotypic effect will be mediated. Just to illustrate that one of these papers and the data from that, if we take energy intake and look at its average, so this is just uh, kilojoules per, that should be day, not that, kilo, uh, kilocal per day energy intake and stratify it by genotype, we show that the BMI risk genotypes are, are consuming more energy per day. And the critical thing about this is that it's um, fat mass or BMI adjusted. So regardless from what these people just need because they're bigger, okay, we're still seeing that they're eating more because of their genotype. But it's an that action is dependent on the environment because they've got to get the energy from somewhere. Um, that can be illustrated here in some work done by um, Colin Palmer, which came out in the New England Journal of Medicine. And actually the same genotype was shown that people were slightly more active overall and enduring activity. This dark blue one here is just the BMI-related risk a variant at FTO. So weirdly, it seemed that they were moving around more. So how is it then that they are putting on more weight? Is that Joe Cecil? Sorry? Is that Joe Cecil? Joanne Cecil? Uh, yeah. Okay. yeah. The answer is that at all levels, so this is after when you give them a, a set meal, uh, but you prime them with different levels of energy intake, was that regardless of their activity, they're all eating more, that they're offsetting that balance. Okay, so they're still overeating regardless of whatever activity battery they're in. Okay. Um, so then, more formally, then just uh, gene environment interactions. So, so really, when we've been thinking about here, all genetic variant, uh, effects are subject to environment, and I'm talking about FTO and appetite. That I guess it really is a gene environment interaction. But I'm just going to look at that in a little bit of a more formal sense. What do I mean by gene environment interaction on a more more formal sense? Well, the, the classic example is phenylketonuria, which is a, a, a well-known clinical condition. Um, so 
In this case, uh, autosomal recessive, so people who carry a particular mutation at this particular enzyme, uh, phenylalanine hydroxylase, have an impaired action of that enzyme, so they can't, uh, uh, um, they can't metabolize um, phenylalanine to tyrosine, so what happens is instead they generate phenylpyruvate, which, which is essentially a toxin that leads to um, the neurodegeneration, okay, some really nasty things. So what do you do? You, you do a genetic screen at birth, you see what genotype they've got, and you take out the phenylalanine. Okay, so that's a gene-environment interaction. You remove the environment, and the gene effect isn't there, right? So you fix the problem. This is what I mean. And that, the gene-environment interactions themselves can be on two different kind of levels. You can have gene effects on traits, or, or on things that you measure. So gene effects which differ by in different environmental conditions. Okay, so like the FD1, for instance, we would argue that if it's really working by appetite, if you were to change the environment and remove the available foodstuff or energy source, you would change the genetic effect. On the contrary, it's usually um, verbalised as treatment effects, but environmental effects or environmental risks might be subject to genotype at an individual level. Okay? So for known environmental effects, it might be that some people have different responses according to their genotypes. And this is the premise of the idea about pharmacogenetics and the idea that personalised medicine might be a really good thing to do because some people might or might not react to particular drug treatments. Unfortunately, this one has been much less profitable in its outcomes because it hasn't really yielded any truth. Um, and just to back up what we've been talking a little bit about FTO and also the work from uh, Colin Palmer's group and the, the Cecil paper that I just showed, um, there, is, there is more evidence to suggest that the actual, the actual FTO effect might be moderated by um, a change of environment. In this case, the change of environment is a change in activity. So rather than influencing the appetite part of the FTO effect, if we influence what that is actually yielding, okay, by altering the environment of, or the active environment of the people. Okay, so what we're seeing is that the genotypic status, rather than, in this case, um, so what we've got here is summaries of effect. So in this case, rather than, um, we've been looking at a generic population and looking at three different genotypes, one which predisposes increased fat mass, here we just stratified that exercise by activity, and in the most active, we get the least genotypic effect, and vice versa. How have we been taking that forward? Actually, within ASPAC explicitly, um, and this is some work that is, is ongoing, part of a much larger consortium, and ASPAC is just put, uh, adding one, one small part of that. So this is, this is unpublished data, which is now being spooned into a large meta-analysis. We've been interested about how activity um, might mediate the FTO effect, but also might mediate genome-wide BMI effect. Okay? And this is just um, some, some data from Ausbank. And in all individuals, in boys for these two uh, bars in the middle and in girls, although we're extremely underpowered here, hence the reason for it to be pulled in a meta-analysis to be brought together for many studies, but what we're seeing is a trending towards inactive, basically the same finding as the one I showed previously, which is in the active group we're getting a reduced FDR effect. So we're getting environmental mediation of our genotypic effects. Okay? Unfortunately, I, I can't put a nice p-value for interaction up here because they're all obviously null because we haven't got any evidence of interaction here. But hopefully in the meta-analysis, which is upwards of 25,000 individuals as opposed to three, we might see that this trending becomes more prominent. Okay, just, a, just the last example then, which is some work from Paul Franks, which is, which is very nice and shows again a differential effect of the FTO uh, locus in particular. 
So it, this is a, 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 a treatment, um, this is a trial for diabetes interventions, okay, which looked at both a placebo, uh, well, it's at three arms actually, the placebo arm, a metformin uh, introduction, and also a lifestyle alteration, which usually involves dietary change and activity. Um, they looked at what the effects of these interventions were according to FTO genotype, okay? And these are actually um, changes not in diabetes risk, but changes in, in adipose or associations with uh, fat mass, if you will. Okay, so in the placebo group, we see the expected relationship between the FTO locus and um, adiposity. So the AA allele, as we said before, which is the rarer risk allele, which is associated with greater, greater adiposity. But in the metformin uh, arm and in the lifestyle arm, we see markedly different profiles of genotypic effect. In fact, almost the complete reverse. Okay, and I think I think you find that these ones actually this is actually genuine evidence for an interaction. Although one of the problems you'll find with gene interaction, gene environment interaction papers, is they're largely underpowered, and proving robust interactions is very hard. <coughs> but it's undeniable that it's probably something we should be looking at given the context of all genetic effects. Okay, so one slide on limitations then, and then some discussion points. Are we dependent on our measurements in these things? Okay, let's take it from both sides of the stick. The genotypic data that we've got now, are we equipped to assess genotypic variation reliably? Well, arguably, we are in an era now of outsourcing, so we send our genotypic testing away to companies who are explicitly designed around collecting genetic data and do it very reliably and very accurately. And they're using high-throughput DNA chip technologies, which are getting, and usually done uh, um, on, they're many-fold, okay, so the replication level is very high, so the reliability of the data is relatively good. They're cheap, accurate, reliable, and usually pretty quick, okay? So that, maybe that's a biased point of view, but arguably we're getting better at picking up genotypic scores. And actually, in terms of the whole data and assessing environmental data and genetic data together, these are, genetic data are the cleaner of the two. And to that end, are we equipped then to assess phenotypic variation properly? And, and even more difficult, are we equipped to pick up environmental difference? Um, and I've just got one picture to try and illustrate this. Um, this is a, um, one of the, exactly the same type of plots as I've showed you before. So we simply have chromosome along the bottom and a p-value up the side. Okay? These are test results for the association between loci in the Ausback children's genomes and their ability to taste a bitter compound called prop. Okay? There's a chap called Fox in the early 1930s found that there was marked um, population differentiation and ability to detect this bitter compound. Some people could and some people couldn't. Yeah. Um, if you challenge a particular receptor, the known receptor for that molecule, with, the, with its ligand, okay, it's like the ideal measure of environment and the ideal measure of genotype. Okay? If we do that a hypothetically in the genome, in, in, in the association study in back, we get a p times 10 to the minus 40 result. And of course, this is that, um, that receptor, and we are challenging it with its ligand. It's, it's, a, it's a brilliant result in the perfect experiment. This is one end of the continuum. If I redo this with bitter vegetables, or cruciferous vegetables, which simulate this effect, and which would be interesting. I'd like to know if people eat more veg, not whether they can taste a, a molecule in a petri dish. There's no power at all, okay? For loads of different reasons, to do with measurement accuracy, to do with uh, molecular challenge at this level. But the illustration is, at one level, with perfect measures, you get great power. In only 1,500 children, this was done. But at the other end of the stick, which is most 
our operating studies, it's very tough to get environmental and phenotypic accuracy. Yeah, so that was just, sorry, I just indicated there that particular finding, which was presented in the Okay, so, so that, that's really it. And these are really just points which we might want to yield in discussion, or if there's general questions, that's fine. I just really here summarise what can we do with common associations with obesity if they're so small? What can we do with them biologically? Are they meaningful clinically? Um, how can we better incorporate an appreciation of environmental context into genetic studies? Epigenetics we didn't even touch on, the idea that environment actually might contribute to the expression patterns of your genome. And that might change temporarily, but also those imprints or marks might be heritable. So your children might respond to your environmental conditions. There's some nice evidence from the Dutch hunger family which speaks to that. Do population-specific patterns exist and what's their clinical implications or genetic environmental underpinnings? What are the next steps of this type of analysis? I've shown you genome-wide data. What I haven't shown you is genome-wide sequence data, which is a whole new level of genetic depth. Um, and how can we use the genetic variants that I've shown to sort of assess this obesogenic environment if it does exist? Anyway, that's, that's it for me. Thanks. Okay, thank you very much, Nick. Uh, Excellent. Into, into a short period of time. The first thing I would say out, out of politeness, we're hit on two o'clock, so anybody needs to be somewhere else, please feel free to go at any time from now. Please feel free. Um, a number of questions arose as we were going along, and you answered a lot of them. Okay. Um, one thing that occurred to me also about, about measuring phenotypes is that you know we need different kinds of activity phenotypes and different kinds of appetite phenotypes. Mm -hmm. um, and, I mean, you've got a particular approach that uh, hopefully will allow you to examine causation. But it also occurred to me, you also mentioned that, you know, um, that some obesity genotypes also associate with height. Mm -hmm. So therefore, they're not just, you know, obesity may just be the epiphenomenon. Mm -hmm. it, may be, it may be physical growth, it may be, may, be, may be other kinds of things. And of course, appetite is going to be tied in with physical growth. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you also mentioned that we're in an omic era, yeah. so is anybody doing network analysis? Uh, absolutely. Um, there's, there's a lot of work at the moment in, in trying to combine the findings from acephalous studies, like genome-wide studies, so with no hypothesis, with no direction, taking the, the results from those and feeding them back into publicly available data on, say, functional studies or on known biology or on known behavioural differences or on population studies. So basically pooling the data that we've got there along with our best pointers, if you will, okay, to know which bits of that to look at. And in that work, that, the network analysis or the, the, the bioinformatic pooling of that data is in a really, really active field. But it's also contentious because it's almost, it's almost neutering the... The, the a hypothetical approach of genome wide with it's stunting it with only available known biology. So it's, it's quite an argumentative field. And, and while you might have uh, <coughs> appetite as a phenotype, it might have been measured a dozen different ways in a dozen different studies. Absolutely and right. And maybe yeah. measuring different things. Absolutely right. So there's, 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 there's an argument on about whether we can counter that just with the size of these studies right. and just pull them and, and, not, and not worry about it because if the differences are there, they're hopefully uh, random, non differential. But they're certainly going to introduce noise. Uh, and one thing which has been extremely interesting and is difficult with clinicians is the idea that we might actually go back and start redefining our phenotypes from what we're learning about these types of studies. And we've done some work, for instance, in diabetes where we've 
stratified our diabetics into lean and, and overweight diabetics and looked again at the genetic profiles. Not only do we see a difference in that FTO effect, which I mentioned earlier, but there's a different genetic profile in the lean diabetics and the overweight diabetics. You know, we get beta cell driven diabetes in the lean diabetics and something quite different in the others. So, and that is testament to diabetes as a heterogeneous collection of disorders, right? But that's absolutely right. It's, it's, that's, the definition of that is very tricky.